Hello folks and welcome back to the Fashion Founder Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I'm your host Charlotte and I am a fashion business consultant and I help founders to start or scale their sustainable fashion business. For today's episode, I am joined by the lovely Kate Knight, also known as the Cashmere Designer. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing, Kate? Thank you for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Winding down now towards the end of the year, coming towards last, Christmas and New Year. Yeah, last few days, last few emails, last few this and that, yeah. Yeah, on um, the home stretch. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining me. It's really good to have you on. Could you just give the listeners a little bit of a quick introduction into you and also your freelance business and how you got to being the Kashmir designer? Sure. Um, so I often describe myself as a reluctant fashion designer. Um, I went to uni and did textiles and specialised in knitting and um, was going to have a, an academic career after I did a PhD and I was, there's another Kate somewhere in Leeds um, having an academic career and then decided to move to New York and become um, a knitwear designer or a sweater designer as the Americans call it. And um, I did move to New York and then after a while wound up getting a job in a cashmere company, which led to another job in a cashmere company, which led to another job in a cashmere company. Um, so I was in New York for four years and I designed for the big department stores in the US. So Nordstrom's, Barney's, Saks Fifth Avenue, places like that. Um, and that's really where I learned kind of my craft and how to design for lots of different customers and age ranges and all of that. Um, and then I decided to move back to London and um, they said, oh, we want to set up an office in London. Would you like to join us? So I did that. We were working with the top end of the high street. Um, so doing cashmere and cashmere blends with Merino for people like the White Company and LK Bennett. Um, and we did that for a while. And then I actually wound up teaching for 10 years, moving to Switzerland, having a baby. Um, and then there was that pandemic thing a couple of years ago um, <laughs> and um, I remember saying to my husband at the time oh I think I'm you know on zoom now maybe I could try designing again um, and that sort of one sentence kind of snowballed into the business I have now um, and it, part of that was I was sort of you know obviously knitwear was going to be my niche um, but I was like what have I done the most of and it is overwhelmingly cashmere um, so I set myself up as the cashmere designer and um, haven't really looked back since. Um, so I design and consult with brands from all over the world, mostly English speaking, so US, Australia, UK, um, although I do have a few in Switzerland, weirdly. Um, and I can help, I often help with the how, so a lot of people will come to me and say, I want to do this, how do I do it? So I'll come in and say, I can help you with finding a factory, um, doing sketches, doing tech packs, working with the factory, working through the, the kinks to get to production. Um, and that's what I love to do. And I love talking about knitting. I love talking about how to reduce pilling, how to um, make something more cost effective. Um, and would quite happily, and I do spend my days um, talking about knitting, designing knitting, and and yeah, that's so I, I now live in um, rural France, just north of Bordeaux, um, in 
comfortably nowhere near a fashion hub. Um, <laughs> the fashion went to die, possibly, um, which is a weird juxtaposition. Um, but I feel very lucky that I get to do this sitting here talking to you and um, making friends all around the world. That's incredible. I th find it so interesting how many freelancers and business owners came off the back of the pandemic and how that really horrible time for many people was actually a really great opportunity to create space for many others and actually realize the opportunities and maybe see that they were open to taking on more or leaving their full-time job or you know pursuing a a goal that they'd had for a long time I think that's really interesting my business came off the back of the pandemic as well so I think it's um a story I know very well and really interesting that you lived in New York as well I didn't know that yeah yeah um so I was in New York for four years um and yeah running around having a good time and working hard <laughs> yeah that's amazing and it's also interesting what you said about no longer living in you know this kind of central fashion hub I think especially going into the self-employed world I think you're definitely more drawn to the slower side of fashion and the more conscious mm -hmm. and you know considered side of fashion instead of the fast pace you know move 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 go 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 kind of industry that you maybe were used to when you were in like mother of corporate world would you agree with that I definitely found yeah. that that was my my case absolutely 100% and I'd much rather work on a product that um solves a problem for a customer than is a trend um or a problem that or, or something that is just beautiful that they're going to keep for ages rather than something that is this season's trend and I almost flinch a bit when people say what's the trend this season and I'm like does, you know are we really I know there are still trends and there's still influences and you can see that but I think it's we're not living like that at least I don't live like that mm -hmm. I'm not going I've got to have this season's trend um so it doesn't feel so relevant anymore um and you know we're all sort of so fractured and everyone's in their own sort of whatever they're following on social media but it's yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting time to be alive it really um, is, yeah. Totally agree with the the trend side of things. Um, yeah. So I look at them. Obviously, it's part of my job, but I don't feel that there's this sort of slavish. We all need to be wearing X Y Z next season. Um, yeah. Do you think I definitely noticed again going back to the pandemic that that seemed to kind of the trend cycle lost a little bit of its way during the pandemic. And I know yeah. obviously the, the fashion world, definitely all industries came to a halt because people were not, you know, the demand wasn't there like it once was, but I definitely think trends slowed down during the pandemic and then post pandemic, it seemed to kind of stay that way. And I know, like you say, there's influences, the high street and fast fashion are still very much churning out those trends at a rate of knots. But it definitely seems like there's a, a larger group of people um, that are maybe more conscious and considered and being more intentional with what they're buying instead of always feeling like they need to be keeping up with the latest trends. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that um, people where people, you know, people are becoming more conscious and they're either investing in something that has a sustainable story or has a personal story or has something 
different than just this is what we think you should be wearing for spring, summer or autumn, winter. Um, and um, yeah, if we're all looking to, to, to make more sustainable choices and to live with more intentionality, then I think we should all be shopping more in that vein. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, Do you tend to work with brands that are more you know, interested in that sustainability route. I know sustainability is such a buzzword and people yeah. use it as a trend in itself, which yeah. is definitely not. Yeah, but do you yeah. find that you're gravitating more towards founders and founders gravitate towards you that are interested in, you know, being a, a conscious, responsible brand? Yeah, um, I definitely have worked with a number of brands who, um, so I just helped a, a brand launch in the UK and she was doing um, children's wear. So knitted. The, so the unique and wonderful thing about knitting is um, it's not sewn together with sewing thread. It's um, sewn. To, it's linked together with um, yarn that is the same yarn that it's knitted with. So if something says 100% wool, it really is 100% wool, and it doesn't have cotton poly um, thread. So you really can totally recycle it. Um, so the idea, the concept of her brand was um, sort of jacket cardigans for, for kids that would be passed on, passed on, passed on. And then when they're finally kind of no good to anyone, then they can be 100% recycled. Um, and yeah, she's just launched and um, she says that sales are going better than expected. So that's delightful. Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic yeah. news. I love to hear that when found new founders with you know really strong concepts really kind of making these ethical and sustainable practices the new normal yeah uh, helping to increase that market share of brands that are, are doing the right thing it's really really good to hear and I think being part of that as well as one of the freelancers who was on the project I think it feels really rewarding rewarding mm -hmm. knowing that you were you know part of that journey yeah, uh, I should, you should check out her website. It's, um, I think, wearetalu.com. Talu oh. is the name of the brand. So oh, amazing. T-A-L-O-U. Fantastic. Um, I'll link that into the, the show notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, yes, often I work with brands who are interested in doing something sustainable. Um, and a big part of my um, work is talking to them about how to make cashmere more sustainable um and if you want we can talk about that for a bit um so uh cashmere not everyone knows that cashmere comes from a goat not a sheep um and the goat will grow two kinds of fibers so there's a long what's called a guard fiber and then the shorter finer fiber is what we call cashmere um and that's so that comes off the goat both of them together, they need to be separated out. And then we use the finer fiber to make clothes with. Um, and it takes about four goats to make one sweater. Um, wow. So that's why it's always inherently expensive. Um, and so one piece of advice I would give to someone who is looking to make cashmere more sustainable is to look for um, SFA, so that's Sustainable Fiber Alliance Approved Cashmere. So that's cashmere that's been herded responsibly, the goats have been taken care of, um, and then the supply chain, you know, there's a, an organisation monitoring this and, and keeping that. Um, there's also a number of brands 
a number of yarn companies who offer recycled cashmere. So that's post-consumer cashmere waste where they've taken an existing sweater, pulled it apart, it's gone back to its fibre and then re-twisted it into a new yarn. So that's another avenue that you can explore. Um, one drawback with that is the pilling. So because that fibre has mm. been broken, it's shorter. Um, and the one, the other thing that makes cashmere unique and amazing is um, you've got long fibres that are fine. So you can twist that into a yarn without much surface fibre coming off. So that's when you get that mm, loveliness, that's mm. what we are feeling is the fine fibres. Nice. Um, yeah. And then another way you can do it is to have undyed cashmere. Um, so essentially goat colour cashmere. Or um, there's also some young companies offering herb dyed cashmere. Oh, um, wow. So more of a, a natural dye sure. technique. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the, the amazing thing about this is it has an inherent recyclability. So, you know, you can you can have this product and at the end of its life, it can go back to the earth. Um, obviously, there'll still be an impact with um, shipping and all of that. But at the end of the life end of its life you you can recycle it yeah that's fantastic I think as as you said you know the carbon footprint element is not necessarily considered for but when it comes to the actual raw product itself knowing that it's not you know even if it did end up in quote unquote landfill you know that it's always going to to break down it, it's not a polyester or a synthetic fiber that's that's you know never going to break down that's um, really interesting yeah. um and then i yeah uh, a bit like yourself wind up offering kind of brand consultancy um and how you know the steps to follow but in a less organized way we were just chatting before we hit record about how yeah some people get get going quickly and some people don't and the difference is there yeah uh, that's that's awesome so in terms of the types of brands that you help from start to finish how long would you advise that process or how would how long would you advise the founder gives for that process I have had my experience with a variety of different brands and kind of can gauge that time period but do would you say that they maybe need longer for cashmere in terms of the sourcing development the manufacturing process yeah what what would you think what does that um, look like generally Generally, I'd say somewhere in the nine to 12 month bracket. Yeah. Um, and, they, you know, I try and be as upfront as possible when they have that first call and say, you know, it's just not going to happen within six months. Um, and if we have the time, let's try and do it right and take the time. And I'm sure you're familiar that sort of a good rule of thumb is if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. I mean, that's not not necessarily, but just to expect delays um and things to take longer than you think 100 percent. Um, yeah always got to manage those expectations going into any business I think but specifically product-based business because there's the development there's the, the, the you know the physical tangible product and there is a lot that can go wrong mm. and that's not to scare any new founders <laughs> or aspiring founders but established brand owners will vouch for that and say you know things do go wrong there are challenges there are um setbacks there are you know you're going to make mistakes 
But just like we were saying before we jumped on the call in our own businesses, the challenges and the mistakes that we have often are what teaches us how to move forward. They actually serve as feedback or a lesson and they allow us to do new things or try a different route or explore other avenues. And I totally believe the same applies in in your product-based business because if you don't have those lessons, you don't necessarily learn anything from it. And if it's a streamlined process from start to finish, you know, it's, you've not really learned anything and yeah, it's yeah. almost guaranteed. It won't be a streamlined process from yeah, start yeah. to finish. <laughs> I can almost, yeah, guarantee that there'll be something that you're not expected. And um, what's interesting to me, so I often will, um, I will meet somebody and think, oh, I know the factory that people, yeah, because it's a little bit like matchmaking. It's a little bit, yeah. um, and I'll be like, yeah, I, I, I think this will work. And often they will wind up going in a completely different direction to what I think. Like I've realized that that's something I'm not very good at predicting or I shouldn't try and predict um, and isn't my job. My job is to offer options and talk through pros and cons. Um, and yeah, I think that's now happened a number of times where I've been like, yeah, they're going to do this. And it was wound up not being that at all. Um, so that's always interesting to sort of see where people wind up. Um, and I think what I love about it is, yeah, going on that journey with people um, and um, seeing where they wind up um, and, yeah, being sort of part of that team. Yeah. Um, so because I often work with one or two people who are on their own too. Um, and then, so for instance, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I had a client, Dog Sweaters. Um, oh, wow. Who, had got her bulk in from the factory and I was like I said shall we have an unboxing party not like I sort of heard of it I was like don't really know what an unboxing party (laughs) (laughs) would look like Um, so we got on zoom and she unboxed and we were like look we did it we made it um so um yeah I've done quite a lot of dog sweaters probably so I'd say about 60 percent women's wear 30% 30% children's wear and I joke that I've done more dog sweaters than I have men's sweaters um, wow. as a cockapoo uh, mum that intrigues me I'd love to know more about the brands <laughs> that you've worked with and if they might be an addition to Nala's wardrobe <laughs> so, yeah and then the conversation we had to have as well was the sizing for the small sausage dogs okay yeah that was another another conversation you know does that count as a different style because we took off the arms and then made the back longer um or is that a different size but the factory willing to do it's a different size so that was that's yeah. interesting I guess we have no size standardizations and regulations in men's and women's wear so we definitely don't have any in dog wear <laughs> no it's really <laughs> you imagine when I sat down to do the grading I was like oh <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting I guess it's kind of like doing a tall and petite range really isn't it because you're working with like longer portions um and obviously shorter kind of limbs if they've got arms on the on the sweaters so yeah that's that's so interesting and yeah if they've got like, six centimeter legs you know you've got three centimeters of it covered with a rib no <laughs> definitely not they need to be able to maneuver as well um but yeah I'd definitely love to know a little bit more about those because I'm always open to um 
to a, a dog wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> and I have done cashmere sweaters for dogs. Oh, wow. Yeah, people for, want it. For posh yeah. dogs. <laughs> um, Hollywood dogs, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. That's amazing. So you did actually say something that uh, really interested me before around um, how recycled cashmere is more susceptible to pilling now I think this won't necessarily just benefit the business owner but it will also benefit the consumer because uh, I think uh, I'm sat here in a sweater that has started to pill itself I keep saying sweater I've just come back from the US so started to um, start talking like the Americans (laughs) Um, this has started to pill I've noticed and when I worked in you know, noticing an industry when we would work through a, a fabric that was pilling, it would normally, we would just change the fabric and avoid it entirely. But is there a way that you can reduce pilling in the design process and how can, yeah, how can that be done? Yeah, 100%. Um, so pilling is basically what happens when fibres escape from the yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a few options and it's kind of, again, a bit of a dance. It's not it's not a science it's an art but you can apply some things so if you knit the fabric tighter so that's increased the tension on the machine Mm -hmm. that means that there's less room within each with each stitch to move around and for each um fiber to come out so you can knit something tighter now the trouble is that will cost you more um because um it's going to use up more yarn going into each stitch um so it's again it's this sort of dance between tightness and price um and what what you want so um some italian yarn companies will refer to the americans as like in sort of a, a candy floss hand feel so you know you can have a very light very lofty cashmere that will feel amazing on the shop floor but will peel within minutes of getting home yeah um and or you can have one that can feel quite bawdy um but it's if it's knitted on the right tension it should last you years and years because you can wash it and each time you wash it it will soften up a little bit and that stitch will loosen up a little bit and but it shouldn't be pilling so um it's sort of it is a fact of life that knitwear will pill um and you can get those combs although you can get an electric one as well and take them off um you can as a consumer um so another tip um if you're washing cashmere washing wool um it's all protein animal fibers so you i use cheap shampoo so if i've bought a shampoo or something that i don't like i just whack that in the washing machine with the cashmere yeah um definitely done that before myself (laughs) yeah yeah so it's all it's all our hair and the wool and the cashmere it's all the same kind of chemical structure um and um so opinion you can get silicon based sort of rinses that will cover the fibers um but then you're going to get a more soapy hand feel so it's one of those things you know what do you want to do and then you can also like you were saying um with wovens you can switch out the fabric you can also switch out the yarn mm-hmm. um so um i'm sure you're familiar with Martindale tests which are the sort of industry standardized pilling tests mm-hmm. um it's much more common to accept like a a lower score on that test for production for knitwear yeah um um and 
yeah so but and then you could but it is a problem with recycled cashmere because that fiber is already broken at least once um and but some consumers it depends what your customer wants you know is it more important that it's recycled or is it more important that it's pill resistant yeah. um so with everything it's it's a trade-off yeah, it's a trade-off yeah exactly yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely um, familiar with the the pill test and going back to that of, you know, making sure that the fabrics are all tested first to ensure that the, the pilling is, a, you know, the, the result that we're looking for, specifically as someone who is um, came from a sportswear background. So it was you know, regularly testing leggings to ensure that, you know, they would withstand the pill test so that when they're worn, in situ in a situation where there's going to be a lot of abrasion and rubbing against other fabrics and if you're in leggings and you're running and there's this chafing going on to make sure obviously there's there's none of that pilling but yeah that's really interesting and um, good to know that there's a few different tips and tricks that people can use to take better care of of their 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 knits and their cashmere's I think that's a big part of sustainability as well in itself often People will say to me, oh, you know, you work in fashion and you talk about sustainability. Where can I buy from to be more sustainable? And I often say, well, actually, sustainability starts in your own wardrobe. It starts with the clothes that you already have. It starts with wearing what you already have instead of buying more and taking better care of what you have. So I think, yeah, those tips around just generally taking better care of the clothes that you have and buying higher quality pieces that will stand the test of time is yeah always my my advice yeah absolutely 100 percent. and then the other thing i was going to say is and i'm sure you talk about it on your course is developing a good relationship with your factory is really where you can start to really tighten these things up yeah um and they you know they will be interested usually if they're any good in you know they don't want to ship a crappy product either so it's about developing that relationship strengthening that communication and feeling like you've got an avenue to go back and you know actually I've noticed this is pulling a bit what can we do and talk about it like that um and they yeah they should be able to help you with that and as a general other thing like as a founder you know don't be afraid to ask the factory don't be afraid to say I don't know what would you recommend because they do this all the time um and and yeah you don't have to be this fountain of all knowledge and every decision yeah that's great advice I think founders that do build a great relationship a strong relationship with their supply chain the different vendors and the factories that they're working with are in a much better position to have a factory that is involved in the development and instead of just receiving the tech pack and producing what they they see at face value maybe actually having more of a, a development role to say well actually we think this might work better or you've discussed this and you've noticed that this hasn't quite worked the way you want it to and we think that this is an, an alternative option that might work better and actually having a team of, of development as opposed to just a yes man who just produces what they see in the tech pack. I think that's definitely the difference that founders notice in having a, a strong relationship and building that rather than just, yes, yeah, seeing them as a vendor. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I said it to a client in the last few months where she was like, we've had all these questions from the factory. You know, that's terrible. And I was like, no, no, it's not. Yeah. Like questions, question, emails and questions are cheap. Samples are expensive. Um, and it's much better that they are asking all the questions before they hit, you know, before they start making, before yarn gets used up, before um, anything like that. And yeah, she was seeing it as as a downside. And I was like, no, you've got to encourage the questions and welcome them because that means they are hammering out every little bit before they press play on that sample. Yeah, that is definitely very, very true. I've been working with a founder recently who's due to launch in the new year. And she was between two designs for one of her pieces and her factory went away and did both designs without her even mm. you know, suggesting the idea and it allowed her to make her final decision and she was really impressed and kind of taken aback by it and I I said you know it's because you've built a strong relationship you've been very clear with what you wanted and you've communicated very well and yeah your factory will be more than happy to go above and beyond to produce what it is that you're looking for and your you know the vision you have in your mind if you you build that strong communication and that strong relationship with them. Yeah, and it sounds stupid, but remember that they're people too, and yeah, um, and and to treat them like that, um, and um, yeah, that's another question I I get a lot is um, people who don't want to, to produce in China, um, and um, I'm sure you do too, um, and the, the honest, there are options all over the world. There's always options, but China does have a concentration of knitting factories in mm -hmm. a way that other countries don't one other thing is that so i think something like 90 percent of cashmere comes from mongolia mm -hmm. um or is raised in mongolia um because it's really really cold there um so i haven't yet been to mongolia there was one time i was on a work trip to hong kong and we were gonna go to mongolia and i was like yes finally i get to go um <laughs> And I looked at the weather app on my phone and it was minus 23. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. Celsius. Not um, and we didn't go. Um, so um, that's still on my bucket list one day. Um, but yeah, so it's really, really cold there. Um, and it's kind of chicken and egg. So one of the misconceptions is that the goats grow the fiber. So... They've kind of evolved, obviously, over millennia to grow this fibre to protect themselves in that environment. Um, but you can also take a goat. So there are people in America raising cashmere goats. There's some people in Scotland. Um, there are pockets um, where, as I understand it, they are. So sheep are much more susceptible. If you take a merino sheep and put it in Scotland, it's not going to be happy because merino sheep want it dry and hot you know, like they do in Australia. Mm -hmm. um whereas goats are happier to go to other climates and it's not like if I took you to the North Pole you would suddenly grow lots more hair because it was cold you know <laughs> <laughs> evolution <laughs> um so there's sort of a whole animal science thing of like the optimal nutrition and age and when you should um comb the goats to get the fiber to get the best cashmere fiber which I won't go into right now um, because it's really much more about them than the animal. It's about obviously 
the parents of the goats having good fiber and then um sort of nutrition and that kind of thing that all leads to them growing nice fiber yeah that's so interesting i think so many people kind of slight segue here but i think so many people think when they think of the fashion industry the fashion world they certainly when I was studying it was kind of oh you know are you cutting and sticking and drawing today and actually I don't think people or a lot of people don't realize the nuance and the science and the kind of development and research that goes into bringing products to life and just how much of a, a life cycle is involved particularly as you say in cashmere there's there's so much to it before mm. it actually becomes that product that you see in the in the you know in the um in the store so yeah I think that's so interesting and and how much kind of how many factors come into play to make sure that that product is you know a, a real kind of world-class quality product that is um you know reflective of its of its retail price yeah and I mean another sort of pet peeve of mine is that when people kind of dismiss fashion as lightweight or easy or frivolous yeah. um and I think that that is something like one in seven jobs worldwide are related to fashion or clothing in some way you know because we yeah. all wear clothes mm-hmm. um and or if you don't that's a lifestyle choice <laughs> you do occasionally we're not here to, to judge <laughs> <laughs> you do occasionally have to put some clothes on um and um you know they yeah uh, one of the things um you know is the gender imbalance in the industry and that's a whole nother mm-hmm. um whole nother podcast um yeah but um it's um yeah people when people sort of dismiss it and you know act but you know what I do love about it is the sort of intersection of design and science and business and marketing and psychology and all of that are the sort of things that come in to make a brand um, and you can't really take away one of those legs without the the, the thing collapsing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I t- totally agree with that. I think I always like that quote from the Devil Wears Prada, where she's talking about, I think, is it the the blue sweater and how she thinks that that makes her exempt from the fashion industry when actually everybody wears clothes every single day and without that you know without the industry that goes behind that you know the marketing the development the product there's so many roles that are a part of that to to bring that product to life and yeah it's it's I think it's just so interesting when when people think that they are you know yeah, I'm not I'm not fashion I'm, I'm not, not part of fashion yeah. yeah yeah and it's yeah. interesting as well um I can look back at sketches I've done 10 years ago and cashmere is obviously very classic generally but it will be they'll be wrong in some way you know mm-hmm. now even though it would be a classic say v-neck or whatever I'll look back and go they're just not right for now um not because they're not following some trend but it's interesting sort of to contradict myself from what I said earlier yeah. about trends how that we are all evolving and seeing different things all the time but we don't we're not even really able to articulate them how that will be old-fashioned or wrong now from say 10-15 years ago yeah I think um, I think there's there's kind of um not I don't know the best way to describe it but there's there's you know significant trends or, or periods of time when things do evolve you know I know this like 
Y2K fashion is is back in again and it's so interesting that a, a whole period of fashion is is now you know made a comeback so it's not just those micro trends that make up the the larger picture but it's those you know year-long trends that, that that kind of make up that picture as well and just as you say if you look back at 10 years from 10 years back from now and then 10 years prior and 10 years prior you will see even from the the basic pieces in someone's wardrobe there will be you know slight shifts even if it's looking at those you know I always refer back to the classic trench you know the Burberry trench is a, a classic but there will be slight changes in the cut and in the silhouette and I know oversize is very much you know the, the thing at the moment and you know if you were to look at things shift over time there are slight changes to to how things might look and I always find that really interesting as much as I like to think that I do exempt myself from the trends <laughs> it's yeah. probably not the case no yeah we will move so, so we've just completely we've completely done back on the first yeah. conversation we had um and saying that yeah we're not following trends but we are following trends and it's that that's where I find design really interesting of like does the sleeve need to be a bit longer or yes yeah, yeah. the shoulder be a bit more dropped you know all of that sort of thing um and how to play that out um and that's yeah what keeps me in the game um yeah. definitely yeah yeah I always say to my clients I, I have these kind of four pillars in a a successful product-based business and the first being the brand itself and how it kind of communicates what it's about and and who it caters to secondly obviously the, the product which is you know what exactly what you play a part in the third is marketing and your online presence your community and then the fourth is the the sales and the conversions which is what makes the business profitable and you know not just an expensive hobby and just like you alluded to if one of those things is missing the the kind of model doesn't work so yeah it's so interesting that there's so many parts and and kind of hats that are involved I always say that to new founders especially when they are solo entrepreneurs solopreneurs there's going to be lots of different job roles you're going to be a marketer you're going to be a research um, designer developer an accountant you're going to be all these roles rolled into one and I think mm. it's being able to yeah identify those strengths and weaknesses and be able to outsource the things that you may be not so strong at not so hot at um which is often the design the manufacturing itself um and being being you know open and ready to invest in the areas that you do need help in yeah 100 percent. I mean I've, I feel like I've had to do a sort of crash course in myself on social media digital marketing having yeah. a website you know setting up a mail list all of that I've kind of had to I'm sure you have to sort of figure out get help with and work out you know when you work yeah in a small business um the other thing I think that and I don't know if you see this too where people get hung up on is like having sort of it doesn't have to be that clever um you want to have a USP but it doesn't need to be something really revolutionary it can be making nice clothes for nice people you know it yeah. can but how you talk about it and how you engage your audience is everything and it doesn't but you don't have to like I don't know have something that lights up and spins around or <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um, it's definitely true so true that you, founders don't need to 
reinvent the wheel and you know be creators and come up with this whole new concept it can just be making something that's already exists more beautiful or putting their own their own kind of stamp on that and their their point of difference could just be the way that they show up and their messaging and how they communicate their business and their values and and how they solve their problem for their for their customers and their community and I think that's yeah that's really interesting because when I speak to new founders and I say you know what is your niche what is your unique selling point it's sometimes it's oh well sustainability and it's this and it's that and yeah it doesn't always have to be this this great big giant new kind of um like you say spinning and lights mm. and wheels mm. and all of that kind of stuff it, it can just be that you've you've put your own kind of stamp on what already actually exists out there yeah totally 100 so what I was going to ask is when founders are new to the industry often a lot of the brands a lot of brands and founders I work with I'm going to say a good 99% of them have no prior experience in the fashion industry at all so it's completely new to them so what would you say the main kind of challenges are that founders face when working with the likes of knitwear or cashmere? What is some of the the bigger things that you tend to notice? Um, yeah, 100%. So generally the minimums are higher mm-hmm. um, and that can be a sticking point. Um, and if it's cashmere or merino, the costs are higher. Um, so that tends to be another sticking point. Um, and um, so there are there are just fewer knitwear factories than there are wovens factories. Um, increasingly, there are more kind of um, sample rooms, especially in the UK, actually, that will do lower minimum quantities or very you know tiny, tiny amounts. Yeah. Um, but there will be a development charge involved for creating that pattern. So um, there isn't a pattern in the same way with knitwear you know there isn't a paper pattern or a paper make a pattern maker isn't needed in the same way yeah. um but they will need to create a computer file that goes onto the knitting machine that will tell the computer you need to put this many needles in action for this part and then knit this stitch for this part and obviously program programming that machine takes is a skill and takes some time so that's where they will charge that fee um um so there's a bit like with wovens there'll be the the cmt cost or the knitting time cost yeah in the same way the the machine time um and then there'll be the yarn cost um and obviously your yarn selection plays plays a huge part of the finish the cost of the finished garment in the same way that it does with your fabric selection for wovens or jersey um and the other one, so knitwear is always done by weight. Um, so um, it will be the weight of the finished garment and that's the cost of the garment. Um, so if it's a heavier gauge, so the lower the number, the heavier the gauge. So if it's a 1.5 gauge or a three gauge, it will be more expensive because it will use more yarn than if it's a, a lighter weight gauge. Um, but of course, with everything, there's this sort of playoff between machine time because the finer needles take longer to knit than chunky needles. So it's always this interplay. In terms of the yarn itself, do you have any advice when it comes to the sourcing of the yarn and and how 
you know what to be looking for and what I, I understand that's probably a big a big part of what you do so you know if someone really needs some significant support then they should definitely come to you but yeah if you could give one piece of advice what would you what would you say I guess um yeah to feel it you know now yeah. of course all the yarn companies have the digital color cards um so if someone really wants to get into yarn um, you can go to there's yarn, there's a couple of yarn shows. Um, the big one is in Italy every year, or twice a year actually. Um, it's called Pitti Filati, um, and you can go and look at all the different yarns, and you get color books like this. Yeah. Um, oh, um, beautiful. Um, so, or um, if you contact the yarn companies, they will often send you the color book if you say I'm interested in blah blah blah, blah, blah and they'll send you something to feel. Um, there's an interesting trend movement at the moment for more British yarn. Um, so um, more yarn that yeah is raised. Sorry, British wool that's raised in the UK. You know you've got a very minimal carbon footprint, um, and that's kind of fallen out of favour in the last forty odd years because um, British wool tends to be coarser than Australian merino, for instance. So people have that attitude of like oh I don't want to wear it next to my skin but actually um there's with the sustainability becoming more of a thing um so we have one of the most diverse sheep population in the world um we have I can 60, believe it yeah <laughs> um 63 or 65 I can't remember um different kinds of sheep that will produce wool in the in the British Isles and I think in Australia there's 15 um so we yeah we have much more diverse sheep population um it's interesting yeah um and also much more so you, even a sheep that is raised in scotland will not like it down south um <laughs> too cold so very particular sheep apparently um oh, wow. so a good resource if you're interested in any of that is the british wool association have a lovely website full of breeds and where you can find British wool um, and all sorts of things. Um, and then there's also, again, if you're interested in more yarn, um, another yarn show, which I think is in Paris and Shanghai, so it tends to be more Chinese yarn, and that's twice a year, um, called Spin Expo. Um, Fantastic. So yeah, I'll definitely... Yarn. I'll definitely get all of those details off you to put into the show notes afterwards so that people can go and check those out if they're they're curious to do a bit more research. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of another whole step in the process. You know, choosing the yarn is one thing, choosing the factory is one thing, choosing the design yeah. is another thing, and all of that interplays. Yeah, definitely. It's it's something I recommend my clients do as well when it comes to fabric sourcing. The, the first place I get people to start is always their own wardrobe to begin with, because there will be a trend between the types of fabrics that they're drawn to personally and will definitely be able to start to paint a picture around what they're what they look for in a fabric. And then, as you alluded to, feeling it, it's so important to to feel a fabric and to see a fabric and you know feel the weight and the drape and just be able to understand the properties of it before you know signing off on it and confirming for production that's why there's sometimes a disconnect when working with a factory who's doing all of that for you doing all of the sourcing doing all of the um you know full factored production 
um always even if that is the case make sure that they are sending you a swatch big enough for you to, to decide if that's the right one for you yeah another sort of top tip I had a, a client email me this week and so she wanted to basically she was asking about different counts and, and what what she should get and I was like honestly if you can and the fact we'll just get them to send you three different swatches yeah um you know or it there isn't a substitute and likewise I've had a client be like can you tell me if this is good quality cashmere and I'm like from a photo yeah <laughs> um, difficult can, yeah <laughs> um, I'm good I'm not that good try. <laughs> um but really it's yeah about feeling it um which yeah is I think what got me into this into this industry and I think you know attracts so many of us that it's the the feeling of it which I do think is ironic I was having this conversation with another knitwear designer um you know we were often the crafty girls at school who did like to do all of those things um and we've gone from that to spending our days on email an illustrator and, <laughs> and hardly yeah. ever touch touching you know real fabric um so I try to make a point whenever I can to get out into the shops to go to the or to go to a trade show or to just kind of be out from behind the computer yeah um because I think that yeah it recharges all sorts of batteries yeah gosh I reckon re resonate with that so much with you know being the, the crafty girl at school and wanting to you know be around fabrics and color and you know really being submerged in that and then going into the self-employed world or even the employed world when you are just sat behind illustrator all day long and responding to emails and although I do love what I do I do miss that you know creative side and it is important to definitely get involved in that and I I definitely um live vicariously through my clients when I'm saying right you need to go to this fabric store and you need to do this and you need to because that is the you know the such a beautiful part of building a brand it's it's the glamorous part that you think of when you see you know the devil wears prada and whatnot and you're seeing them select the fabrics and the swatches and the and that's the the part that i think any anyone who's dreamed of having a fashion brand has always imagined it would be yeah. um, and then there's obviously <laughs> the side of it where you're you know having challenges with development and you're doing the marketing and you're doing your accounts and all of the boring stuff I always say to clients there's going to be some really boring admin stuff involved we need to do that but definitely you know go all whole wholeheartedly into into the glamorous stuff because it's so much fun and and capture all of it as well because that makes really good content yeah yeah and that's I think I, I was talking yeah, again to um clients earlier today and uh, they were and I know that you preach from this particular hymn sheet of people have this image of like I'm going to launch a product and then that's when I start talking to my audience and I was like yeah. no 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 you want to be talking to them way earlier yeah. and designing designing with them um and and or you know trying to get them involved in, in your journey and um this particular brand had launched and it, things hadn't gone as well as they expected and they were like we now realize you know we weren't talking to our audience we weren't involved you know blah 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 we just put it up on on Etsy and Amazon and it didn't sell um yeah. and um so I'll be interested to see if they come back with with something else but yeah. yeah it's 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 one of those isn't it 
I've definitely given that advice before and the vast majority of clients take that on board and they you know they do build their community from the from the beginning and um you know really show that journey but then there's some founders who may be opposed to that for for whatever reason and it it does show in the results and it's I never want to say I told you so but it is so so important to build that community you know if you start launching your social media and talking about what you're doing within a you know a month before you launch it's still it's still not soon enough you need to be really you know taking people on that journey from the very beginning I tell my clients as soon as your bit your name is confirmed it's trademarked and you know that's yours and the IP belongs to you get your Instagram page set up and start showing people that journey because there's so many gorgeous stages of development that you're going to be going through that it would be a shame not to to show them and to, to build trust and um you know generate that that community that ultimately when it comes to the launch date will feel like they've been on that journey with you feel like they've been part of that process and are much more inclined to to want to buy the the product of that yeah because something um i would always say to someone thinking about like there's no need to do a 12 gauge cashmere v-neck um the world has enough of them and um marks and spencers and uniqlo will always do it cheaper and be able to do it cheaper in more colors than you will ever be able to do as a startup brand but where you can compete is you've got your story and you've got something different and you're not a big box of marks and spencers or whatever yeah so that's what you can do and yeah in the development process there's so much meat to 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 mine to use um and yeah um that's one of the bits of advice I always give um I think you do too yeah gosh yeah Um, I go all in on that community like show them show them your journey show them your story I always refer back to the I'm not sure how true it is now. It could be that it's longer or shorter, but they, they, they say that the average amount of t- touch points a customer needs with a brand is between seven and 10 before they choose to even click on their website, let alone actually buy a product. So if you've been building your social media channel and you've been you know, communicating your journey from the get-go, the chances of having those seven to 10 touch points and, and then some is much more likely than if you just launched your social media channel a few weeks before you actually launched your product. And yeah, it's just going to really stand you in a better position when it comes to, you know, trying to sell and, and, you know, having the the success of that post launch. So yeah, it's something I, I talk about all the time. I think my, my clients and the founders in my community get sick of me talking about <laughs> it, but um yeah it's so so important it's true and I mean one of the joys I've found with launching my business is this whole community online of freelancers and other designers and other people like yourself um and it's been a real joy I feel like I've got a weird set of colleagues (laughs) (laughs) and so I'm part of some networks you know other fashion designers which is great from a sort of sometimes um you I need to know like a lower mercury elastic to run with a yarn you know that sort of thing from a very practical to um just the support of you know a chat um and I never thought that would be possible even five years ago to feel like I've got a community um so there's this whole sort of 
almost like an underbelly of these small business communities that is so much fun <laughs> yeah oh I totally agree I think going from the industry where it can be quite you know cutthroat and it can be quite competitive to being in the self-employed industry I always see the self-employed industry as different to the corporate industry and I think it's much more friendly people are much more open and there's so much more abundance people are much more happy to share their contacts and just be more open and yeah I totally resonate with that because I think this little fashion community on online particularly on Instagram I think is you know it's really nice one to be part of I'm just waiting for the Christmas party yeah (laughs) there's someone doing that (laughs) is there (laughs) yeah yeah Um, oh Alice Benham, oh yes of course yeah I think yeah. I was away when she did it but uh hopefully I can make the next the one next year did you did you go no I mean I'm in France um, oh of course you are yeah yeah but it's it's attempting like coming for that couldn't I <laughs> yeah totally yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's um it's important whether you are a freelancer listening or a fashion business owner or even just a a product-based business owner that community aspect is important from a perspective of selling and gaining new clients and and you know actually generating customers and revenue but also from the perspective of what it means for you as a founder having a community of people who get what you do who understand your challenges who are there to support I some of my biggest you know and best friendships and supporters are are on social media and not necessarily the friends that I grew up with or went to university with or worked um in in certain jobs with so I think it's yeah it's really important to find your people online and um yeah invest the time into that yeah it's amazing we can do it now and I think it's only going to get more important you know with AI with yeah technology being able to do hopefully more of the boring stuff um yeah the one thing <laughs> that we can spend more time doing the the nice human on human stuff because that's what's going to become I think more valuable as um you know the world takes on AI yeah it's yeah, yeah it's really interesting I think um you know when whenever I speak to grandparents and whatnot who say oh you know what is it that you actually do and I'm sort of <laughs> explaining to it to them what it is that I do and I it's always interesting um that my job role didn't exist you know however many years ago as a designer yes when I was doing tech packs I'm working as a design consultant but now as um, a mentor or a consultant or a coach however best you want to to shape it it didn't particularly exist you know less than 10 years ago and I was thinking that's so interesting that the online space has given me the opportunity and and kind of created that for me and yes I've created some amazing friendships and people that I then met in real life just from Instagram who I would never have otherwise met which I think is yeah just the the real cool and positive side of social media yeah I find it so interesting I've had it a number of times where I've met a client in a consultation or whatever um and they have been like I feel like I know you um because they've seen me on Instagram and it's that weird thing where our brains doesn't doesn't differentiate that you're flat and 2d to me but I still am talking to you it's that you know so it's that strange thing um where we we just want faces and we want connection um and that's what we're hardwired to do yeah I think that leads nicely to going back to slightly what you were saying about community and showing up 
face to face to your community. We were talking a little bit about this before we jumped on and mm. hit record and how many founders are really, you know, opposed to showing up for their community and putting their face to their brand because it might, you know, affect their image or if it does, it might not look professional or any of these, any number of reasons why not to do it. And I think it's it's important to show up because people need that connection. People want to, to put a face to a name. And it's one thing that big brands and retailers don't have that yep. you can capitalize on is that you are a real human, a real person behind the page. Yep. So I know it's daunting and scary and all of those things, but don't be afraid to, you know, explore and, and show up for your community and speak to the camera. Yeah, no, it really does make a difference. And I sort of hate it too, but... Yeah try and do it as often as I can because I, I notice as soon as I'm doing that my engagement ticks up because yeah. it stops the scroll people want to see other people and yeah moving forward because we all I think already know when something is AI generated there's sort of a yeah you can feel it can't you <laughs> they've got seven um, fingers and <laughs> yeah but even when it's it's captions or something you can sort of feel that um lack of humanity and so I try to think of course I'm going to show up imperfectly um yeah and even even now I'm looking at myself going oh what's going on no you look wonderful that voice in your head we all have it yeah um and um and just to be like you know this is I, I you know I'm a human being I'm not perfect I'm gonna not I'm gonna say I'm I'm gonna stumble over my words I'm gonna forget what I was saying yeah um and that's okay yeah um, that that's that's so true and practice makes perfect with it as well you'll you'll get better at it each time and you'll look back at content or videos that you've filmed and I do it with podcasts you know podcasts this time last year if I've ever caught a glimpse of it I think oh my gosh I sound you know like I I'm so nervous but the it just yeah it just the more you do it the better at it you'll get and the more natural it'll become to you it'll just be like picking up FaceTime to a friend it will feel you know uber natural and um yeah you'll you'll build a really strong community off the back of doing it yeah brilliant well I feel like that's a a really nice place to kind of close things up um one kind of final question would be to the founders who are listening is if you could give one piece of advice I know we kind of touched on this with various different stages of uh, the cashmere process but if you could give one overarching piece of advice to a founder who's looking to launch knitwear or cashmere for their their product or their collection what would that be um I think it would be not to be scared to start small which I think is also one of your pieces you know yeah it's okay to launch with one or two pieces it's fine um and from my point of view it'd be great if you wanted to do 20 pieces but morally I don't want you to do 20 pieces and have that sitting there in your spare room trying to sell that um I want you to launch with something you really believe in and that can be a really really small really tailored collection um that you've thought about every aspect and then you're really going to believe in and want to sell yeah that's amazing that's yeah strong solid advice <laughs> and I would I would say the same you know start small you can always grow from there but if you start too big then it's you're going to be presented with yeah challenges so where can people find you online and how can people work with you yep so you can find me at my website which is the um i'm on instagram as the cashmere designer 
I'm on LinkedIn as Kate Knight. Um, and I think all of those different ways, you should be able to, um, you know, so send me a DM or um, send me an email. And yeah, love to hear from you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I will catch the rest of you in the next one.